Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. I'm Ryan Honeyman, a partner at Lyft Economy. My guest today is Resma Menikam, a leading voice in today's conversation on racialized trauma. Resma created Cultural Somatics, which utilizes the body and resilience as mechanisms for growth. As a therapist, trauma specialist, and the founder of Justice Leadership Solutions, a leadership consulting firm, Resma dedicates his experience and expertise to coaching leaders through civil unrest, organizational change, and community building. Resma is the New York Times bestselling author of My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma, and The Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies. And he's also the author of the forthcoming book, The Quaking of America, An Embodied Guide to Navigating Our Nation's Upheaval and Racial Reckoning, which comes out uh, April 12th, 2022. So Resma, welcome back to the show. Hey, man. When I got the invitation, I was like, yeah, we're going to do that. Okay. There's, there's, there's other podcasts where I go, no, nah, we <laughs> we're not doing that one. You know, I realized yeah. something that's like a little bit embarrassing, but I was like, I should have known this earlier, is on your photo that you have, I think it's on the cover of your podcast, I realized mm-hmm. that's Nipsey Hussle on your on your That's sweatshirt. Nipsey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I was like, okay, this, yeah. this like makes more sense now. Everything, you know. Yeah. yeah, man. Look, I have a number of people that I go to that were real philosophers. Um, one of them, like, and people don't think of them in this way, but it is the way that I think of them. Like Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee was a philosopher. If you ever like just listen to him, his interviews and his talk, he's a philosopher. The way that he combines things and thinks on fractals, right? Muhammad Ali was a philosopher, right? Nipsey was a philosopher. The way he talked about how you have to build things and how you get into trouble by trying to leap over the brick by brick, right? But you just want a brick wall, but you don't want to go through the brick by brick. I mean, just it's just, you know, in the black community, we have a lot of knowledge that white supremacy says is invalid. And I really believe in white body supremacy says and deems invalid. And I really believe when I see black bodies and black people and indigenous people like on the come up, it fills me with so much joy because it is literally the energy of creation busting through concrete. Like, you know what I mean? And so structurally, there's no way Nipsey should be talking about things like what he calls mailbox money. And Nipsey said, somebody told Nipsey one, asked him if he was, you know, Nipsey was doing a lot of good stuff. And uh, dude said, you know, you making mailbox money. And this was like mailbox money. What's mailbox money? He said, mailbox money is that money you make without having to give all of your labor to it. And you get money in your mailbox, whether that's an email, whether that's right. And you think about, and that actually started me on the classes that I have on Cultural Somatics Institute, right? Was, can I put some classes up without me having to do all of this labor and all of this emotional labor every time? Can I begin to build pieces in that will allow people to get access to me? But my labor does, I don't have to be extracted upon in order for people to get 
what they need to get from me. And so I started thinking about how do I begin to layer this? Like, so what's the most expensive thing for me, both in terms of labor, in terms of output? What's the most expensive? And it's live in person, right? That's the most expensive. So that's the most expensive thing, right? But they're all like, I have free courses. So you, so if you want to interact with me, you can do free stuff. Then there's levels to it. And so Nipsey, that's why I would, you know, I got a bunch of Nipsey stuff and that's why I wear stuff because he was a philosopher, man. He's an ancestor now, but some of the things that he said and put in the way that he built something, there's no way he should have been able to build what he built. And he had a knowledge that could transcend you know, what people thought was his station. It, he used it to, he used it as fuel as opposed to it burning him up. He used it as fuel. And so, yeah, that's mm. why I like him. Yeah. He was the first one who I really realized he kept talking about, I have the rights to all my tracks. And I was like, no one has rights to their tracks? Like Nipsey knew. Yeah. I mean, it's stuff like that, man, that's when you know you're dealing with somebody that is transcending the moment. They're transcending the moment. Like his tracks at the beginning, you know, nobody was listening to him, right? Nobody was, but he owned them, right? And he kept hustling and he kept moving and he kept doing. And then when stuff pops, now people look back and go, oh, what about those? Yeah, I got that. I own that. That's mine, right? You can put it on your commercial if you want to, but you don't pay RCA, you pay me, right? There's a lot of people who have hustled. Like I come from, a long line of hustlers and just, you know, grinders. And one of the things about, like, I've learned is that do what you love, even if it don't make you, you know, the money that you think it should be making you do what you love, because eventually the world will catch up. And once it do, if you're doing what you love and you own your own shit, it's another, you talking a different type of relationship now. Right. You know, it was what Prince, it was literally what Prince, like when Prince had slave, but that was about his masters. He was like, I'm done sending these folks babies to college and I'm producing all this stuff. And why is the relationship between a record company? Why does ownership have to be all they need to do is distribute? Why did why is the ownership piece? Why does they have to own my creation? Right. And that was his whole thing. That's why he went back and recorded all of his old music, re-recorded it in the vault. Right. That's why he did that was because he said, OK, y'all own those masters. You own these masters. I own these masters. Do You see what I mean? Like that's the it's the structure, man, will have you believe that there's only one way to do this thing. And it's either being adjacent to or kowtowing to white body supremacy, right? Like make white bodies comfortable and you can make it, right? Tell white bodies what they want to hear and you can make it. And what a lot of people are showing is that there ain't no one way to do this. And your avenues are your avenues. They're not the avenues of creation. Creation itself is what guides me, not the structures you don't put in place. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to, one of the things I was going to try and do on this podcast, I have some, some words and also some concepts and just wanted to get your thoughts on how you're cultivating your relationship to those things. Mm -hmm. So one is this idea of joy. How is joy showing up in your life and how are you cultivating your relationship to joy? So the concept of the white body deeming 
and has deemed itself the supreme standard by which all bodies' humanity shall be measured structurally and philosophically. That concept is a thwarting concept, right? And one of the ways that I'm cultivating more more access to it, not necessarily like you don't see me walking around like, you know, whacked out like, hey, right? But I'm able to, I have a little bit more room for it now. And that's been through cultivation. I have a little bit more room to actually pause and slow down and, and see when my kid is doing something that he like keeps knocking on my door. Said, Dad, can you know, can I show you, I show you this? And I'm catching myself being, I'm catching myself now going, do get up, just go, like go. And sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, but I'm starting to catch myself. So that, to me, that's on the pathway to joy. I think I'm starting to laugh more and I'm starting to reclaim pieces of myself that I think, especially after I got back from Afghanistan, that really closed me off. And so there was parts of me that were goofy and weird and like just kind of, as my wife said, you got that old man energy. You got that old creepy ass man energy, right? So I'm starting to I'm starting to own that energy more. <laughs> I'm trying to, you know, just being, you know, stupid. And so so joy for me is that joy for me is also watching black bodies resist this bullshit in both subtle ways. I watched a comedy show on Netflix last night, a comedian by the name of Earthquake. And some of the things that he said is really about resistance. And many times people don't, people just say, oh, it's a joke. It's a joke in that you laugh. It ain't a joke in what it's moored in, right? And so this idea of Black resistance, like it's relatively new, Brian, that I could be on this call talking to you and be somewhat sure that when I, leave or go outside that there's not a lynch party waiting for me talking the way that i talk for most of our history the white body has had full and unfettered access to my body it is relatively new that i have some and that's relative right because amar arbery didn't have that trayvon didn't have that brianna taylor didn't george floyd you see what i mean like it's relatively new but it's relative it's not like I can just, I don't have to concern myself with the feralness and the viciousness of this structure, right? I can't just keep walking. I, I don't have the luxury that most white bodies have when it comes to that. So, yeah. So that's one of the ways that I'm experiencing joy is watching resistance, watching, watching some white people, you know, or some black folks and indigenous and other bodies of culture saying, you know what? I'm not allowing that. So, yeah. You know, we dropped in a little bit on this idea of dance. Yeah. And you're telling me about the psoas. I was telling the rest of my I've been dancing more, which is so beautiful. So counter to my conditioning. You know, especially like I feel like some men, maybe there's like hip hop dancer where you're still trying to be cool while you're dancing. You're like, Yeah, yeah, that's I'm right. Like, that's right. <laughs> but it's like I'm like, what is the not cool, like sensual way to dance? And like that's Latin, it. like whatever dancing or you that's know. It. And it that's is it powerful talk about resistance i was like yeah man man. yeah yeah so in my book in my grandmother's hands i talked a lot about the vagus nerve and the vagal nerve it comes out of the brainstem resonates it is literally an amplifier and broadcaster 
right? It is the thing when you're talking to your sister, you're talking to your wife and you catch the vibe on something and you say, what's wrong? And she goes, nothing. And you go, oh, fuck, right? Or you're talking to your brother, you say, hey, man, what's going on? He said, nothing, man. And you go, right? That's the vagal nerve. That's the constriction. That's the tightness. That's the, oh, right, all of that. That's the, you know, there's more room, right? And you hear it. And the longer you're with an, another nervous system, another body, the more you pick up on the subtle pieces. The same thing applies to the psoas muscle. The psoas muscle is the muscle that actually connects the top part of the body with the lower part of the body. It's right around the hip area, right? Liz Koch says that it is a fluid muscle. It's designed to have a lot of fluid in it and stress can begin to dry it out, right? It is also the muscle that's responsible for urges and fight and flight. It's the mobilizing or immobilizing muscle. If something's too dangerous, you immobilize the stuff. If something is accessible, you might be able to mobilize, right? It is, that's the psoas muscle. In a society that's predicated on the immature notion of the white body in the context of pigmentocracy, that the white body is the standard, there is things that have happened to bodies that I believe thwart and constrict natural kind of primordial movements like of creation. Like one of the ways that creation moves is through a crawl, right? Or through pumping, right? And part of what I've been doing in some of my work is helping bodies, particularly Black bodies who've been impacted by 250 years of rape, legal rape, begin to sense into what happens in the hip, including the amount of spring-loaded charge that's in the hip. So moving your body, moving your hips, brings into these kind of primal energies, right? Sometimes when I'm talking, I think people think I'm going to go into this mystic crystal. Like, <laughs> like that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we are a part of creation, not apart from creation. And some of what has happened in these structures have truncated the expression of that. And so beginning to play with your hips in terms of sensuality, beginning to play with it allows both that which has been thwarted to begin to show up, right? And that which could emerge began to show up. And so, and sometimes what happens when people like start to begin to explore into this, they only want what can emerge without realizing that there's four and 500 years of thwarting that's also taking place. So you starting to begin to do Latin dancing, which is a lot of it is indigenous and African movements, right? Because remember, when we talk about Latin and we talk about Spain, Spain was one of the five uh, superpowers that were engaged in the genocide, the imperialism, the enslavement, right? And so, you know, the other thing that I've been really, I've been doing a lot of reading lately about this whole thing around pigmentation, right? And uh, pigmentocracy, right? That we live in a structure that's predicated on the hierarchy. And this is why anti-Blackness and indigenous invisibility is woven throughout the structure is that the pigmentocracy suggests that the further you get, the darker you get, the less human you are, right? That's woven through the structure. So whether you're talking about Spain, Portugal, France, England, the Netherlands, you're talking about that 
piece. And so the idea that you're going to start doing embodied work and not deal with the 400 years of spring loadedness is actually one of the problems that I see in a lot of the somatic work right now. Most somatic work can't handle the charge of race. So that's why they keep going to, we've all been impacted by it. And we all should, right? That's the move, right? It's like, we all should, yes, racism, but let's talk about intersectionality, right? Because <laughs> they can't hold that charge, right? And so for me, you know, when you talk about beginning to work with that, and here's the other piece. In white bodies, think about this for a second. Most white bodies that are listening to this call right now are descended from white bodies that were fleeing something that never got dealt with. And most white bodies that were fleeing something were fleeing other white bodies that never got dealt with, that never got dealt with. So this kind of locking down in a hip area from terror becomes decontextualized over time. Right. And so you beginning to begin to do that. Here's what I would say to you, though. If you're just doing it with just your white body, you're only going to be able to get this much. You have to do it with other white bodies and begin to explore those pieces for the rest of your life, right? Because now it becomes communal knowledge as opposed to just individual knowledge. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The other piece of it is so much of my practice on the like sort of somatic or emotional side has been to calm things down, like sit and meditate calm, yoga, calm. I mean, there's some fire in yoga, but dance yeah. is different. It's like, hype it up. This, that's it's that. like, let's get, I mean, there's like sensual dance, but also like let the energy out in like a ecstatic way that's different. That's right. So this whole idea of calming is really, I've come to the conclusion that it is a bypass to maintain white comfort. And I think religion does the same thing. I think yoga does it. I think there are all of these kind of escape hatches that the white body supremacy structure has built in to say all that spring loadedness bypass it. <laughs> and this is why I say white bodies are just going to take at least nine generations before white bodies know what the hell is going on with race. Because they haven't had to learn and be conditioned and tempered around race. So this is why when white people start talking to me about race and they start credentializing, I, a lot of times I'm like, I really have no use for you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because you're trying to credentialize, tell me how much you love my grandmother's hands and how much work you've done and how you're a somatic therapist and how you're doing all that stuff. And I'm sitting there thinking you're dangerous. You don't even know that the vibe that you're sending off is that you're dangerous. Not that you're smart, but that you're dangerous because you're not taking the time to slow it down with other bodies and create culture, not self-declarations. So, yeah. I'm curious, one of the other concepts or ideas I was going to ask you about is this, how are you relating and cultivating ritual? Mm, so that's another one. Right. That's another one of these. I think if you don't watch it, it can slip into bypassing 
and then be empty, right? Everybody's doing land acknowledgements now. Ain't nobody giving land back to the indigenous people. <laughs> you, you, you know what I mean? Everybody is like, you know what I mean? It don't mean shit if it's not emergent. It means absolutely nothing because you haven't tempered and conditioned anything, right? The last time I was at a place or I was doing a thing online and I purposely didn't do a land acknowledgement because when I got the information on what they wanted me to talk about, they say, you have to do a land acknowledgement first. And I purposely, and I knew, I knew the energy was going to just wind up. So I'm go through the whole thing. And it wasn't an indigenous person. It was a white person that did this. They said, you know, I love your talk. I loved what you said, and I'm 100% in alignment, and I get it, and da da da. And when usually when white people do that, I'm like, watch my wallet, right? <laughs> Just like, you know. But I'm a bit concerned that as we started this, you didn't do a land acknowledgement. You didn't, and I'm sitting there and I'm smiling. And when they got done, I said, "How dare you?" I said, "You're talking to a person whose people." were enslaved, that most white bodies have no idea the level of feralness that my people have experienced. And because you want me to perform like a fucking circus monkey, right? You think that that means something. And what I'm going to tell you is, is that most indigenous people know that this land acknowledgement stuff that you're doing does not come with giving the land back. So stop fucking trying to get me to play this game. If I want to do it sometimes, I will do it. But you don't get to do your, you know, do your white gaze, G-A-Z-E. You don't get to do your white gaze at me. And then now all of a sudden you're an authority on fucking land acknowledgement. You're not land acknowledgements without Realizing that the brutalness of getting that land, the genocide of getting that land has still not been, there's been no healing. And when I say healing, I don't mean healing like kumbaya, right? I mean, there has been no acknowledgments that every treaty that America entered into with indigenous people has been broken. But you want me to sit up here and do a land acknowledgement because that's the thing to do. And it's empty and bodies of culture know it. And so what was the question you asked? Just ritual, <laughs> how you're related yeah, to ritual. ritual. Yeah. yeah, I just, I think ritual has to be emergent. It just has to be emergent and it has to be communal. And most white bodies have no interest in being in community with other white bodies. They will live next to other white bodies. They will have white neighborhoods, but communal means intimacy, right? Creating a living embodied anti-racist culture, not being not racist. There's no such thing as not racist. It's either you're doing everything you can to usher in a living embodied anti-racist culture, or you're complicit by saying nothing, by doing nothing. Because one of the reasons why white bodies don't do anything is because they know the feralness and the viciousness of other white bodies. They've learned it through their participation in lynchings. They've learned it through their understanding of it. And so what ends up happening is they don't, white bodies more often than not, don't want to contend with those pieces.
one of the things that's been up for me lately is, you know, it, it definitely dovetails with white body supremacy and what's happening is the lack of relationship that I've had with ancestors and like my mm. people have had with ancestors. Mm. And I'm curious how in your life you're cultivating your relationship to your own ancestors or like how do ancestors show up in your life right now? Yeah. So, you know, the first thing you said around how white bodies really, you know, don't have an embodied sense of ancestorhood. And I think that's the problem. And I think, so in my book, one of the things that I talk about in The Quaking of America, one of the things that I've been talking about is that when you watch January 6th, right, what you're watching, yes, is something that happened on January 6th, but it happened on January 6th in 2021. It happened on January 6th in 1987. It happened on January 6th in 1908. It happened in 16. You see what I mean? That feralness around white body supremacy and rage is really has nothing to do with black and indigenous bodies and everything to do with white bodies being disconnected from the trajectory of history and the trajectory of creation and the trajectory of their ancestors. And so there's this piece that and and then that disconnection ends up decontextualizing itself and being standard. And so the closest that most white bodies can get to that is church or yoga, right? Or something, but even then it there's an experience of there's no there there, right? It's like it's performative or it's and I'm talking collectively, right? And some of it is because I don't believe that most white bodies have conditioned a communal container that can actually hold what it takes to look at this construction of whiteness. Like, like I said earlier, I've been doing some research about, I asked this question in my last workshop. I said, when did African people start to develop pale skin? Just think about that when I say that. When did African people begin to develop pale skin? When did Europeans begin to develop pale skin? Now, for somebody who's maybe read a little bit something, they'll know what I'm saying, right? That pale skin evolved from African people, from black skin, right? And that that occurrence of development really didn't happen and start until about 8,000 years ago. That's how close the idea of you as a white person is pale skin. That's how close that is. For most of our history, that hasn't been the case. Now, for some white bodies, they'll hear that and be like, that's bullshit, blah, blah, blah. And I would ask, you know, there's this new thing that they just invented last week called Google that all you got to do is Google when did Europeans start to develop pale skin? And it all comes up to science. The science in this is like taking off. You know, a lot of people are starting to begin to write about this. And so the reason why I said this is because just that notion is a constrictive notion for most white bodies, that white bodies come from black bodies, <laughs> right? That without the African woman that we all come from, without her mitochondrion, nobody exists. And so for me, ancestorhood is how do you tie back to creation, not just how do you tie back to your Uncle John, 
<laughs> right? And most people think that their ancestors are only human memories as opposed to ancestors are elemental. Ancestors are energetic. Ancestors are historical, right? Ancestors are animals, right? Ancestors is fire and earth and, and you see what I mean? Like those pieces. And that's not just something you can just do and declare. It's something that has to emerge in a particular context. So that's how I think about the ancestral stuff like that. It can be used as another bypass. One of the questions you ask on your podcast that I might just borrow for a minute is how, <laughs> how are you sleeping and eating, man? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. Getting better now, the trials of the people who lynched and murdered Ahmaud Arbery and then uh, the Chauvin and then uh, the federal trial of the three police officers who also murdered him. Sleep has been off. Stomach's been off. Belly's been off. I'm trying this new thing too. I think that might have thrown it off or two. Well, I'm only eating once a day. And so my body's like, <laughs> eat, you know, I try to so so it's been off, but it's starting to even out a little bit. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about as well is this emergence of the pushback. I guess I wanted to ask you, what is your because we spoke in I was looking back it's October 2020, you know. Oh so wow. Okay. It's been mm -hmm. a minute. Mm -hmm. What is your thoughts on the sort of evolution of this movement from COVID, you know, and George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, like this sort of last two years? Are you feeling optimistic or pessimistic or what's your general take on like on things right now? Last week, Russia attacked the Ukraine. And in the midst of that, white body supremacy showed itself. It's always there, but it showed itself. It showed itself in the feral, rancid way by some white bodies seeing other white bodies and saying, you can get on the train and you can get on the bus, but you Arab, you African, you brown-skinned people, I can tell you're not as fully human as me. Why? Because we live under a pigmentocracy. And pigmentocracy says that if you are darker, you are less human. And then you watch all of the newscasters saying stuff like, this isn't like, you know, a third world country. These are good Christian people. And so they're so, you see what I mean? So I don't get fooled by these, you know, okay. So the three police officers, you know, got convicted of a federal thing. That's not structural change. That's not a re- organizing of things. That's accountability without justice, right? And so I don't really get enamored with a lot of this stuff that when it pops up. I just go, oh, yeah, I'm glad that that happened. I think it will bring some, I'm not sure what it will bring to the families, but I think it'll bring something different had they not been convicted. I think, you know, there's a different texture, different quality to it, but I don't get all like, Oh, we're on our way. <laughs> like we, we've arrived and now we're getting ready to do this thing. Cause most white bodies don't have an appetite for it. I believe you. I know it to be true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's something in the last two years? What's a strongly held belief that you've had that's maybe changed in the last 18 months to two years? I think in some ways I had the belief 
that if white bodies got enough information, then they could do something different. And that's been dispelled. I don't believe information is the curative element. And so I don't believe that white bodies are interested in the conditioning and tempering that it's going to take in order to transform this world so they don't pass the feralness of white body supremacy down to their children. I don't believe, I don't believe they have an appetite for it. So I've thoroughly dispelled that myth now. This idea of like, like politics, like, so you have left wing, you have, you know, left leaning, left wing, and then you have right wing, right? And to me, both wings are part of the same racist bird, right? When you have Biden sitting up there talking about the blacks, when you have Biden right now could, with an executive order, strike marijuana as a schedule one, right? Right now he could expand the Supreme Court to not just nine, but to 13, or he could do that now. He could executive order a lot of these, like the, the voting things and all. I mean, there's a lot of things that he could do right now, and he doesn't. And it's because the Democratic Party is, they are complicit with the Republican Party and white body supremacy. And that's what moors them. They would never say that. But when you hear an old white man say the blacks, <laughs> right? And everybody's like, you know what? That's just the way good old Joe talked. You know what? Good old Joe also ushered in, you know, a lot of draconian laws that affected black people, right? You know, so that's why I don't get enamored with these pieces around, you know, oh, somebody got convicted and that means justice was served. Look how long it's taken these people. I mean, think about this, man. Do you realize what would have happened if indigenous, black, and brown, and people from Mexico or people from Colombia, do you realize what would have happened if 6,000 people that look like me would have attacked the Capitol? <laughs> do you realize the, the amount of bloodshed that would have happened and the fact that that didn't happen? Tells you everything you need to know about white body supremacy. That's why when I started, when, so I was almost halfway through writing Our Grandchildren's Souls, which was going to be the sequel to My Grandmother's Hands, right? And stopped when January 6th happened and was like, we got to address this. And so that's why The Quaking is the book that people yeah. are getting now. Let's talk about that book. So tell folks yeah. what's going on in that book. So The Quaking really is my way of saying, here's the setup. And here's what you can do about it. We are way down the road for having a war. This is not, for me at least, this, think about this, right? You watched, a lot of white people were surprised and watched in the horror what happened for January 6th. Just like, oh my God, like they're kicking in windows and beating up people and shitting on the floors and like just foulness, right? And they were shocked, right? Think about how many white people saw that on TV and were shocked and horrified. And now think about that they did nothing to change their behavior. How many white folks saw that and said, I need to take a self-defense course? That these people have guns and weapons and there's at least 10 million of them. At least 70 million that voted for Little hands, 
Trump, right? There's at least 70 million people that rock with that, right? I would say eight to 10 or seven to 10 million are not opposed to using weapons on people. And white people watching what happened and not realizing that those people will murder white people. Like their intent is that if you're on their side, you cool. If you're not, you're going to be murdered. They were looking to hang Mike Pence, right? And the collective white body did not go, we got to take this seriously. What are we missing? You know, do we need to learn how to use weapons? What do I do with my ch-? Like that didn't happen, right? Because most white bodies believe that their whiteness will protect them. I'll never say that. But when you watch something like that happen and in mass white bodies don't switch up, you're watching an advantage. They know their advantage by white bodies, but they're not seeing that this is a different level. This is not what you think, right? And so for me, that's why I started writing a book because I don't believe white folks realize how much mortal danger they're actually in. And they've used whiteness to help them get around it. And it's not going to work because when the shooting starts, white bodies are going to be asked, what side are you on? You can't declare yourself at that moment to be not racist. (laughs) It's irrelevant, right? All of your things around, I don't want to have weapons in my house. I don't want to learn a self-defense. I don't want to take the seriousness of white supremacy. I don't want to do that makes you vulnerable. And then I wanted to also speak to black and brown and indigenous people and say, you're not crazy. You're not crazy. Like what you think and have in that energy that you've had to sense into and tend to, it's actually happening. And so that's what the whole book is about, is putting into context this thing that looked like a one-off, but has real roots historically. And then I provide you know, a way to begin to condition in an embodied way so you can be ready for what's getting ready to happen. So that's, that's it. And I think that's one of your unique gifts is framing up the conversation. This is real. Like there's an intellectual understanding. And then what is the embodiment, embody practice? Because just reading the, like the ideas ain't going to do it. It ain't going to do it. You have to literally begin to temper and condition your body to be like, if I told you that I was going to do a boxing match and you said, man, I'm, I'm glad you're doing it. Yeah. You, you starting to get, you get more exercise. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm really thinking about doing a boxing match. And then you said to me, were well, you thinking about like boxing, like boxing somebody? And I said, yeah. And then you said, well, when are you thinking about doing it? And I said, tomorrow. And I'm fighting Tyson. You'd be like, dude. You're not, what do you mean you're fighting Tyson? What do you mean you're fighting? Like, you'd be like, why do we think things is any different when we talk about race? And it's specifically with white folks. They just think that they can just declare and that's enough, right? And they're not conditioned. And so there's going to be a lot of pain, right? And sometimes I think white bodies are more willing and ready to deal with dirty pain, the pain of avoidance, than clean pain of going through it. So, 
Last thing here, how can folks learn more about your work? So April 22nd, the book's coming out, the new book. April 12th. Sorry, April 12th. April 12th, 2022. Yeah. <laughs> 2022, yeah. April yeah. 12th, 2022. And then, yeah, what? tell folks about like your, some yeah. of your offerings and where can folks learn about So it? if you go to resma.com, R-E-S-M-A-A.com, there'll be a list of all my classes is up there, workshops that I'm doing. I suggest people take the foundations course if they want to know more about you know, this work around somatic abolitionism. I am going to be actually on the Breakfast Club uh, the week of April 12th again. I'm looking at some other talk shows out there too. I have a blog on psychology today now. And then I'm going to be doing a bunch of book signings. So I'll be doing, I think, be doing a book signing in New York, Dallas, LA, San Francisco, Atlanta, and Minneapolis, along with I'm cutting an album to go with the book and the art exhibit, traveling art exhibit. So what I would suggest is that people go to my social media, go to resma.com, sign up, go to resma.com, scroll down to the bottom, sign up for the newsletter so you'll know what I'm doing and stuff like that. And then just get involved and take some classes and let's try and change that. Yeah. I'm going to have to come down to San Francisco and say what's up. So I'm nearby. Yeah, please do. <laughs> I, sign up for the newsletter so you'll know when it's happening. And then I'd love to see you, man. Well, Resma, thank you so much for being on the show again. And appreciate you. And yeah, I look forward to, to seeing you in person someday. <laughs> yeah. Appreciate you, man. Thanks. Next Economy Now is a production of Lift Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.